difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, and Genevieve Kosky. On the first half of this episode, we discuss The Battle of Algiers, Gilo Pontecorvo's classic political thriller about insurgency and counterinsurgency in the French-Algerian War. Now we bring in Detroit, which uses a similar docu-journalistic technique to cover a violent incident at the Algiers Motel during the Detroit riots of 1967. Detroit is the latest in a series of political thrillers by director Catherine Bigelow and journalist-turned-screenwriter Mark Boll who previously collaborated on The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. And much like The Battle of Algiers, it expresses a strong point of view on racial injustice through a careful recreation of a real historical event. John Boyega stars as our chief witness, a black security guard named Melvin Desmukes, who responds to a report of sniper fire coming from the annex building of the Algiers Motel. What Desmukes sees is an all-white local police unit using unlawful tactics to terrorize the mostly black guests into giving up the shooter. Led by Will Poulter as Philip Krauss, a racist cop who's already in trouble for shooting a looter in the back, they attempt to get information by taking the guests to a separate room, one by one, and pretending to shoot them. Bigelow and Bull trap the audience in this terrible situation for the bulk of the film, which views it as both a microcosm of the racial discord that led to the riots and an example of the racially motivated police violence that still plagues our country today. We'll talk about the Bigelow-Bull style, the controversies surrounding Detroit, and its relationship to the Battle of Algiers after the break. It's a war zone out there. They're destroying the city. Whoa, hey, y'all seeing this? Hey, look, we're not too far from the Algiers. Let's just go there until all this blows over. When you're black, it's almost like having a gun pointed at your face. It's like this. Hey, boy, what you doing on my street? Get that gun off me. Or what? Now let's not be stupid in this situation. You need to tell me where the gun is. I got all night, people. Tell me exactly what is going on here. I need you to survive the night. Okay, guys. Um, this is the second film into this rather disturbing double feature. What did you think of Catherine Bigelow's Detroit? <laughs> I, I walked out of this film incredibly angry. And it really took a while for me to kind of unpack the space between being angry on behalf of the people who suffer in the film and being angry about the film. Hmm. And this is a rare, I usually don't read criticism before I see a film um, because it'll affect how I think of the film. And because I like going into a film knowing as little about the plot as possible. Mm -hmm. So I'm not mentally like ticking off plot points. But in this case, the controversy over the film was so large and so inescapable in the critical community. Like I was very aware of, of the rather large criticisms that have been weighed against this film. And I personally found them all accurate. 
Once again, this movie is very well made. It's very emotionally moving. The acting is superlative. The immersivity of it is, I think, pretty inescapable. But once again, I have that feeling of I, I felt like the filmmakers did not care about these characters at all as individual human beings. Mm-hmm. I felt like they were being put on display as just this idealization of suffering. It reminded me of the most painful parts of 12 Years a Slave, just repeated over and over at infinitum. And once again, I walked away with this feeling of what is this about? Why was this made? Was this made in order to because if it's if it's just made in order to highlight like the systemic problems that we still have with policing and race in the United States, that is a worthy goal. It's a goal that I got emotionally. It is not necessarily a goal that I got narratively out of a film that has so little to say about why these things happen or about the humanity of the people they happen to. I'm still sorting this movie out. I thought Zero Dark Thirty was that was my movie of the year that year, and and I thought that the approach paid off really well in that. I have trouble buying any sort of ill intent with this film, which has been you know, part of the criticism of it. I just I just can't see. It. I think it suffers from having a strong character you follow all the way through. And I don't think one really emerges to the end. And that's Algie Smith as Larry Reed, who is the singer for the dramatics who, who leaves music or leaves secular music behind over the course of this film and, and before the group becomes popular. And I found the stuff at the end with him, I guess it's a spoiler, but whatever, where, where he joins a, a, a local church choir. And, and this is the, you know, the first step, at least, towards psychological healing. It is both wonderful and comforting and also isolating because it's like he just wants to go to the neighborhood church as far as his life can take him now after the events. So I found that incredibly moving. And I wish we'd kind of had a little bit more of that strong point of view carrying us through the, the whole way. I, I found the journalistic approach both um, fascinating and upsetting and also kind of a limitation of this film, uh, which I admired in many ways greatly. I was expecting to have a Zero Dark Thirty-like experience where this was, was revelatory in some way, and it wasn't that. But I did, you know, I, I do admire this film. Yeah, I think it's a movie that is very well executed, but flawed in its conception in a lot of ways. I think it's superbly directed and, and performed. But I I agree with a lot of what both of you have said, especially regarding the characters. And I do think uh, Algie Smith's character, Larry, is the only one who gets an arc that maybe says something a little more than look at how horrible this is. Because in, in addition to him, like kind of finding comfort and retreating into the church, there is also an aspect of like how the film engages with Motown and his parting ways with Motown. Like it it makes very explicit that like after his experience, he is uncomfortable with performing music that is targeted at white people and that it quote unquote mainstream audiences, but white audiences. And there's specific dialogue to that effect. And in retreating to sing in an all black church and sing spiritual music that does have a very strong emotional component to the black community in which he lives, I think that is a a really telling arc for his character. It's too little of the movie. Like, I think the movie almost revels in the violence in a way that I think is. I'm not going to call it irresponsible because I don't think there's bad intent on Bigelow and Bull's part with this movie. I think it is just 
like to go back to what I quoted Gila Punta Corvo saying, why am I making this film? It seems to be they want to make this film to draw a direct correlation that like this is still happening and these are events that are still happening. Thing is, like we know that we see these events. There is video of police brutality. This is not a hidden thing to us, or especially to Black people who experience this in their communities. And I think that's where a lot of the criticisms of irresponsibility on the movie's part come from, and that it seems to be holding it up for the benefit, honestly, of white audiences to make us uncomfortable. And it succeeds in that respect. But did it need to be done? I mean. In the sense that who's doing it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the film is wholly about what's happening now. That is, it explains its its existence. It, it is not about the Detroit riots per se. It's about how an incident like this could happen and then lead to what happened at the trial and lead to this very familiar injustice that's being done. And so I, so I think that is the reason the film exists. And I don't really see a whole lot of fiction films stepping up to the plate at all <laughs> to address. Well, but, address. but I think that's where the, the approach becomes a liability because mm-hmm. it is not really approaching this as a, a fiction film. It is taking a docufiction approach and in a journalistic approach but why, why is that a limitation, though, in terms of like the message that it's trying to get across? Well, one of the big reasons for me it was a limitation is because you see at the beginning when the, the riots start, mm-hmm. there's just a feeling of the people in this community, the people in this community are animals. They turn on their own buildings. There's no reason behind it. They physically attack. You think that's the film's point of view? I, I think that the some of those scenes, yes, the specifically the sequence where this group of, of this mob, this, this angry mob attacks the firefighters who are trying to put out a burning building. Um, when Conyers is trying to calm people down and, and people are and saying, stop damaging your own homes and people are screaming, burn it to the ground, burn it to the ground. You don't have individual perspectives in there. You don't have the background, the political background or historical background to understand why all, all of the people in this community are angry. You just have a sea of furious black faces and people physically attacking each other and destroying their own buildings for what the film presents as literally no reason whatsoever. And it, it just, to me, it, it buys into the kind of racist rhetoric that you hear of, you know, they're animals, oh, they're burning oh, their own wow. I, I never thought of that of, at all, of the that, film's perspective. That, that seems like I don't think way, it's the film's perspective. I can what, see where that like can a, create that impression. Okay. That's definitely, that's, was, there's a piece in the Huffington Post by, co-written by three historians mm-hmm. uh, pointing to that as, as one of the biggest limitations is it does not provide enough context to show that this, this, this raid is part of a series and, and you know, part of an ongoing bit of civil unrest and, and an ongoing issue. I, I, I get it. I get it. I, I don't. Again, I think you have to assign a lot of ill intent to this film. That's so just not there. Yeah. I'm, I'm I, not I, I, saying that that is the filmmaker's intent. I am saying that that is how those individual scenes come across. Keith, I also have that exact same article up on mm-hmm. my computer. Would you Would you read the headline on that? Yeah, I, this article is really worth reading. I think the headline is, is a little much. Uh, Detroit is the most irresponsible and dangerous movie of the year. But again, it's an article that's very worth reading. It's written by Jean Theo Harris, Sayburge, and Mary Phillips, uh, three historians from various colleges. And it does provide some interesting context and takes it to fault for some omissions, including this 
this would be a fascinating scene. There was a thing called a People's Tribunal, which was a an alternate trial held by uh, civil rights leaders, including Rosa Parks was, was part of it as well. And it was kind of a, a different trial that came, as you might guess, uh, to a different outcome. Okay, so I think we're bumping up against the limitations uh, of this way of filmmaking, which, which in a way were suggested right at the beginning we were talking about the Battle of Algiers and, and your dissatisfaction in particular with the characters or, or lack thereof. And I think in both cases, it is a matter of uh, the filmmakers making a very strong choice in terms of their point of view on these incidents. And there are things that, as a result of making that choice in going about it and the rigorous ways in which both films go about it, they're going to leave some stuff out. Things are going to be are not going to be there. And so we're going to miss some of the character work that, that might lend depth to the film, and we're going to miss some of the context that, that uh, might give us a different perspective on, say, why looting happens. But what we get instead is what, what we get. And for me, the heart of the film is just brilliant. <laughs> like, the, the the middle, the all the stuff in the Algiers annex, I mean, it's just the filmmaking is so superb, and it's you feel like you're there, and that this collaboration that we've been seeing between Bigelow and Ball, where where they are doing such a tremendous amount of research, and, and and she has just become more and more committed to making the film a certain you know immediate sort of handheld immediacy, and she's gotten better and better at that as it goes along. I think that is the part of the film for me that really really works. The lead up to it is a little bit trickier, and, I, and the last third I have no interest in at all. Um, I think it's I think it's there because it has to be, and I think it gets us to the point of the film and its and its relevance to what is happening now. But um, ultimately, the film's concern, which may be too narrow for you all and has been too narrow for many, is just to show us the how. How did this happen? And let us draw from that as we will. Here's, here's something, though. I think in many ways, the most compelling fleshed-out character in the film is Philip Krause, played by Will Poulter, who is this racist cop basically a sociopath i mean and and from the first scene he's saying like all the right things about how they let the people down the you know it's kind of their fault and then he shoots somebody in the back with no remorse and he is the ringleader of of, of all the torture and, and murder that goes on in here but he's also the most invented element of the film this is kind of an odd, odd contradiction <laughs> to this movie is that is the part this is the most fictional part of this docufiction because he's a composite character mm-hmm. he's definitely the most interpreter of this and i think the other thing you run into with that is like it almost becomes a film about one charismatic sociopath who leads a few people astray instead of about the institutional racism you know it is such a mm-hmm. powerful performance it almost tilts it too far in one yeah, direction that's a, that's a good point he's so good in this movie I, I, and i never want to see him again i hate yeah. that guy yeah <laughs> and he's he's really he's falling gross, into yeah. kind of a, a i mean he's a really good actor and he's falling in a, into a kind of an uncomfortable place of like playing evil crazy people yeah mm-hmm. mike ryan interviewed him for us and he said, he said there was a lot of hugging between takes there's a lot of a lot of i don't really mean this kind of kind of moments i mean, you know, I mean not so, knowing anything about uh, the creation of this character the composite nature. I mean, I assume a composite of real figures. I wonder if, if like the behavior of contemporary cops who have been put on trial for shooting on black men mm-hmm. fed into this guy as well. Is just of just being, 
let off because they're they're young and they're kind of like well, the fact that he looks like he's like 15 years young old and they're scared and they don't know the rules and you know uh, you know because you get that bit of the beginning Feared of just like hey life. i didn't know you're not supposed to shoot shoot people in the back <laughs> shoot unarmed running people in the back all right exactly but people get away with that people get away with well, shooting people. And, in the and, back. but that's not the only reason they get off either like I, one thing i found really fascinating and um pointed in that courtroom scene is the way the lawyer played by john krasinski oh um, <laughs> of all people kept invoking the criminal records of every black man on the stand which feels Mm -hmm. very relevant to the contemporary discussions we have Mm -hmm. about police shootings of uh, unarmed black men and whether they were or were not criminals i don't know scott i like yes it seems to me like one of the things you're saying is that the movie just didn't have time to go into more depth about the really important things that it should have been going into no i'm just saying it's i'm not i'm saying that you're right in the sense that it does expose a certain problem with this way of filmmaking I, i just think the film is limited in certain respects and in enlightening and illuminating and others and it's because of this way of making films um, which again i think was is better applied to the previous films i like the hurt locker and zero dark 30 quite a bit more than i like detroit but i'm just you know as a semi-defense of the film i think you know there are elements of it that i just admire greatly purely from an aesthetic standpoint i mean from an aesthetic standpoint that central sequence is as i say i mean it's it's riveting and gripping and believable Mm -hmm. it's also from what i've read 40 minutes long and it's incredibly repetitive past a certain point and it just it wallows in the suffering, in in the weeping, in the bleeding of these these characters. It's a horror movie. It's a pornographic movie. Horror doesn't even cover it to me. Like in a horror movie, but I think that like places the exploitative nature of it into sure. But I like I just like I come down. You say horror movie, and I think about something like The Babadook or, or Don't Breathe, like something recent where the characters are stuck in a situation that they can't get out of, and they're frightened, and they try different things. Mm-hmm. In this case, there are no different things to try. They're paralyzed in the situation where they're not allowed to speak. They're not allowed to move. They're not allowed to look at their tormentors. And it just goes on and on and on. And there came a point when, you know, even beyond the discomfort of the situation, I was thinking, just narratively speaking, we need to know more about who these people are to distinguish them. So they're not just like, you know, a flock of s- some of them semi-strangers, some of them characters we know better. We slowly get to know some of them through their suffering, but it's so repetitive. There is no need that for that sequence to be 40 minutes long when we don't have time to explore who half or more of these characters are before it happened. Yeah, I just I think that would just not be this what this movie is, which is maybe is a problem. Maybe <laughs> you know, again, you said it before, Genevieve, just maybe just straight up conceptually not a film that was going to work. I don't think that's true, though. I mean, I think if if the movie had taken the time to put in some of that context revealed in that HuffPo article about why the the reaction to the raid was was so violent, like what led up to it why the people in there were so angry, why the people in the street reacted the way they did. If anybody had taken the time to explore, why are you stoning the people who are trying to keep your your buildings from burning down? Like, why are these things happening? The movie doesn't seem to have any interest in why they're happening. It just seems to have an interest in how painful they are. Well, I think it has an interest in just in setting the level of tension leading into this specific incident so so in a way i mean it may be irresponsible to not give you all the context that you want from that first part of the movie but i think its purpose for the larger conceit of the the movie is to get you in a place where you can feel 
that level of t- tension has reached a certain point. I mean, this this would have been what m- would have made an interesting comparison with Do the Right Thing because Do the Right Thing has that escalation too where it's just like it has to get you to a place where you understand what occurs at the end of the movie. Sure. I mean, we, we talked about pairing this with Do the Right Thing and uh, 20 minutes into this film, I kind of wish we had because that film is so much about exploring who that character is and why he does what he does in the end. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this case, I, I didn't know why people were doing things. And I do think it's irresponsible. I don't need the film to tell me that there's racial racial tension in the United States. Mm-hmm. I don't need the film to tell me that the white people are getting away with killing black people indiscriminately. I already feel that tension in everyday life and in politics. What but I want from the movie... People, I mean, I don't, I yeah. mean, I just but don't but are the people who don't feel that the ones who are going to see this movie? They're not going to go see this movie. Well, I mean, well, it's on three th- it opened on 3,000 screens. And it didn't do that well. <laughs> I, mean, well that's, I mean, I think they hoped that, it would, that, that, yeah. that more people would... I mean, obviously they didn't make it so nobody would see it, but uh, it is not a a one million dollar independent production. It's a. It's it was released in three thousand screens for everyone to see, and a lot of those people are folks who are not as aware of uh, these things as you know, perhaps we might be. And once again, I go back to to Twelve Years a Slave, which is a beautifully made and beautifully acted movie, but at the heart is about. The, the pornographic exploration mm. of the suffering it's of black way, bodies. Don't away the word pornographic. Awful loosely well, here, I, Tasha. I, I mean it. Uh, I mean, uh, when you're sunk that deeply. I don't, I don't know that 12 Years a Slave takes any sort of joy you know, or, or sensual, sensual pleasure in the suffering of black bodies. Uh, uh, believe me, when, I'm, when I say pornographic, I don't necessarily mean sensual, but I do mean... Well, I think that film has a, the word has a very specific meaning. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... But, okay, uh, it, 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 like in the, in the beating scene, the big central beating scene in 12 Years a Slave. That scene is obsessed with the grotesque physicality, the the up-close understanding of the way bodies collide. It's Mm, it's I, just. I, I mean, I, I don't have notes prepared on Twelve Years a Slave, but I, <laughs> that's a movie I, I, I admire deeply, and much more than more than this one. And I feel like this is, you know, it, it's one of the most uh, affecting portrayals of, of, you know, this original sin at the heart of, of the country we live in that we don't talk about enough, and 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 uh, and we don't talk about it enough. I, I, I swear, you know, I swear, these movies movies matter. Movies movies turn people's attention to this. I mean, Twelve Years a Slave is not just about taking you know visual pleasure or whatever you want to call it in, in the suffering of bodies there's a lot more going on in that movie oh i absolutely agree i really don't mean to i like i'm talking about that one sequence i mean what 12 years a slave to me does right that detroit does wrong is it it gets you into the point of view of the central character it shows you what his life is it shows you what it means to him to yes. be where he's become yes. and then it i mean it goes to a place that i think is too extreme and too embedded, but it's still, it's a person's story. I wanted Detroit to be a person's story, anybody's story, not Will Poulter's. Yeah. 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 I well, mean, that's, that's, that's totally fair. Yeah. Tasha, we're friends again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is like a little reductive and glib, but I do think like maybe part of this movie's problem is that it's called Detroit and not Algiers or the Algiers Motel mm-hmm. or like it insinuates a bigger story mm-hmm. than that, I think that's that, what I assumed it was going to be when I when I heard of this movie described yeah and like it starts out seeming like it's going to be that way as we see the 12th street riots start to happen but then it becomes this other thing that is you know much more focused and probably in need of a stronger point of view than something that is like the battle of Algiers you know providing more of a mm-hmm. bird's eye view of like a city 
I should have called this movie The Battle of Algiers. <laughs> I mean, that would have been pretty pretty sly of them. It may have provided some, uh, you know, problems marketing-wise, but... <laughs> um, speaking of Battle of Algiers, uh, we'll be right back after this break to talk more about the connections between the Battle of Algiers and Detroit. Hey, fellas. Melvin Desmuse. I'm with United Security. I'm going to that grocery store across the street. I come bearing gifts. Oh, thank you. That's nice boys. Hey, all things considered, this is pretty good. Thank you. I don't have my usual appliances. Mm. I ain't got any sugar. I don't push it, man. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Oh boy, do they ever. Uh, this is a good pairing, Detroit and Battle of Algiers. Uh, I, I think you can really see Battle of Algiers as a primary source for Bigelow and Bull as they've made these three films. And first and foremost, I think we need to talk about the style, right? Um, because both of these films put a premium on veracity. Detroit has those <laughs> moments, which usually annoy me because they almost seem like prideful in their way of just like cutting to actual footage or photos of of the event and and you can just appreciate how how much the film has gotten right right uh but uh what about the style of these two films i mean i think the the first thing that struck me was was the timestamps and and how you know that's that both kind of established like you know we're getting these details right right down to the moment they happened and and that's you know it's a way to establish that in verisimilitude but you know i feel like the style itself makes that feel earned and Bigelow loves her uh, her handheld cam, her handheld up close in the face shaky cam, mm-hmm. and that does give it a, a more uh, documentary like feel in a lot of these scenes. It definitely makes you feel present and close up and uncomfortable, especially during the hotel scene where there are times when you you can almost feel the hand on the back of your head pushing you in closer to the action than mm-hmm. you want to be. It's very immersive in the same way that like Battle of Algiers during some of those. Uh, those raid sequences in particular, there's a sense of just being too close to the action, of being too close to the danger. And, and actually, in both cases, I think there's there's a real sense of threat coming off the screen. I do think there's an element in Detroit that is not really there in Battle of Algiers, which is the period element, of like incorporating the period element in that yeah. style, because Battle of Algiers was filmed like less than a decade, right, after Algerian independence. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think Ponte Corvo was necessarily concerned with like getting the retro style <laughs> style yeah. right. But that's a, a big part of Detroit in the in the costuming and the, the setting and the kind music. of in the music yeah. for sure and evoking a, a specific time and place through production design, basically. I, I, I don't really like have an opinion on like how well she does it. I think she does it well, but it, it's just like interesting how that converges with the documentary style within kind of a period piece that is also commenting very strongly on the current day. Yeah, I was. I mean, I'm a sucker for good period detail, and this this felt like the right. I loved you know going to the Fox Theater and seeing yeah. those those I, uh, big performances. I, I grew up going to the Fox Theater. Like, I mean, this is my city. Like, I was like, very very excited to see it portrayed. And I mean, obviously, this was before I was alive, but you know, it's, it's still kind of a part of my city's history that I'm familiar with. And it was like exciting to see it realized on screen, albeit in this really 
horrifying and unsettling <laughs> context. <laughs> Both of these films have a fair amount of what you would consider B-roll in a documentary, just kind of scene setting, not particularly focused on a specific part of the narrative or specific character, just kind of a, here's the street, here's like a gliding shot showing uh, the storefronts that have been either broken in or painted over. Here is the city, here is the Casbah, here's the camera slowly pushing in on it from far away. Just that kind of the documentary scene setting where nothing much is happening except that you're exploring a city where everything is happening. Yeah, and it has that thing too, as uh, Keith was saying, was a big appeal of Battle of Algiers, which is uh, just showing you how things, how it works. The, the the big central sequence in the film, you know, you have to start in your with the crime. If you're the screenwriter, the, the filmmakers, you would start with the crime scene, and then you just kind of like fill in all of these details and and, um, and and really bring it the whole thing to life in a in a vivid and disturbing fashion, which I think this film does um, pretty well. But uh, there's a lot of other connections too um, that I don't want to miss for example which of these which of these million things law enforcement i think is a Um, really big one uh, yeah uh, yes and so we have one contrast (laughs) in the film has to do with law enforcement where we're in uh the battle of algiers there's a a great deal of discipline in in uh in breaking up this terrorist network and here that you have a bunch of dumb racist cops uh who are who are uh, (laughs) no there's the one good cop (laughs) <laughs> the the lieutenants or whatever who uh who calls him who a, calls him a, a racist yeah mm-hmm. which that you, felt which that felt like anachronism yeah so, 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 some of the dialogue here is not so great it felt a little not all white people uh, yeah also yeah. like the the one cop when larry is uh escaping from the house right who greets him with open arms and takes him to the hospital who that, could do this to somebody yeah yeah it's, it's, yeah oh that line he lays on a little thick yeah yeah mm. one thing that i i found interesting in detroit is how it portrayed the national guard and the state police is being like oh nope we're we're yeah. out we want no part of this at all um the, the, the city cops are like the hicks in their, yeah. in their view but also they're just going to let them do what they're going to do and and that's yeah horrible. so like just kind of the striations in you know the law enforcement is, is interesting and I, I mean i guess there is that to an extent as well in in battle of algiers because you have like when the paratroopers arrive mm-hmm. it's like they're the ones who are gonna gonna get stuff done you know and obviously as you say they are uh portrayed as uh, a lot more focused in their approach yeah. you know they're, they're efficient professionals efficient, right. yeah. and they yeah. don't blow, they don't just blow up buildings yeah right. well there's i mean there's kind of a unity of purpose to the uh, the cops in battle of algiers there's kind of a sense that they're all on the, the same side and that their racism seems just sort of casual and universal but because it's so endemic to the way they're dealing i mean the whole idea of just kind of like ghettoizing all of the muslims into particular areas and uh, like airlocking them through checkpoints to get them in and out it's just you know it's a fundamentally racist system and the racism there seems pretty casual whereas in detroit it seems very specific and locked into certain individuals but yeah the whole aspect of the national guardsman uh, i believe played by jack rayner and oh that's that's who it was. Yes. Well, he's he's under <laughs> a he's under familiar. a helmet that comes down to like the top of his nose most of the time, so it's hard to see his face. But that conflict, I think, came closest to what I wanted in this film in terms of explaining how something like this could happen. Just that sense of. I don't approve of what's going on, but I'm not going to say anything. Mm -hmm. I'm going to interfere, but only in the most passive, non-offensive way possible. 
I don't want to rock the boat. That that sense of him being a, an, a, a generally a good person who doesn't want to get in trouble and doesn't want to rock the boat was just one of the most effective and frustrating things for me in that movie. Genevieve, you had one one mention that I want to kind of get into a little bit, which is which is the women of the Battle women. of Algiers and, and Detroit. So many. Um, could, could you talk about that a little bit? Well, in the first half, we definitely talked about the how the uh, section of the film following the three women bombers is probably the most effective portion mm-hmm. of the film. And it, it does use, I think, women effectively while still, for the most part, backgrounding them. Tasha briefly mentioned this. Detroit is not so effective in especially how it uses black women, which is it basically doesn't. Why is Samira Wiley in this movie to speak two lines? Samira Wiley, who is the best part of Orange is the New Black or was the best part of Orange is the New Black and The Handmaid's Tale. Like she's amazing. And she literally has two lines in this movie, checking Freddie and Larry into the motel. Mm-hmm. And there are two white women who who are definitely part of that that main sequence and, and like they do have consequence in the film but you know it's it's another part of the controversy surrounding this film is the fact that black women are more or less erased from this story and the white women have a really questionable part to play mm-hmm. in terms of there's really a sense that there never would have been a trial except that white women yeah. That nobody would have listened to anybody involved except that white women. And uh, maybe. Well, and, and one of those white women is uh, the one who is the one who points out this mucus in the lineup for reasons I do not understand at, at all. I'm still assuming clear. that that's just a badly framed sequence and that she was just, uh, you know, proving that she could identify but one of the people she that was, was there. On, no, he was on trial with them, though. In okay. Real, so, okay. So she was basically contextualizing him as part of the law enforcement who enacted yeah. this against the yeah. it's not portrayed very well in the film i mean that does make sense out of some stuff that seemed a little garbled but i don't think that that's very well told one yeah. of them one of them was loretta mccready from justified and the other one was gilly from uh, from game, game of thrones, thrones. Yeah. but i mean they do a good job they they suffer really well just like everybody else suffers really well yeah. the inclusion of these two white women does introduce a very interesting element of this ongoing relations between cops and black men in particular and like the this goes back to anti-misogenation laws and you know the preying on of white women by black men i mean like there's a huge huge ugly history behind all that that the film is clearly invoking here yeah the one cop is clearly increasingly enraged for the fact that they are there I mean, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. it's there in birth of a nation as well like, that's a big big moment in birth of birth of a nation yeah. but it just uh i mean it goes to a, a rape threat place so quickly and then just lingers there for so long and when i talk about the pornographic violence of this film like i don't want to get too literal about what happens in that sequence but there's a good 15 minutes where it just seems really clear that that cop is going to like beat and rape those women and there's a lot of very uncomfortable bedroom stuff that happens about it and it goes into a very exploitation film place that just again seemed really unnecessary to me and you contrast that with battle of algiers and the women who are apart from the suicide bombers you just the camera keeps finding them Mm -hmm. keeps finding them like in crowds keeps finding them in rooms i mean it's the last shot of the movie yeah it's just focusing on the fact that they're 50 percent of the population like maybe they aren't the leaders of this movement but they're certainly present and boy when they start up the ululation Mm -hmm. and the french get really freaked out by it (laughs) like there's just that sense of like they're they're driving this movement as much as anything well and and enabling it in a lot of ways hiding uh guns under their robes or in their baskets 
biscuits. You know, like that is a big part of the FLN strategy is using the fact that women are not looked at as inherently threatening as Mm -hmm. men are. Uh, Yeah, and particularly when they're, you know, sort of made up and kind of looking like they're going to the beach one of them <laughs> um so wow, that uh, whole sequence where they're they're getting ready to mm-hmm. where they're basically taking off the hijabs and getting ready to go out as westerners mm-hmm. i mean it's like it's watching a a sequence where men gird up for battle except they're mm-hmm. girding up yeah. with peroxide and skirts and we and have the drums during that part too like that's, oh yeah isn't that where the, really the military the, feel yeah. uh, no. <laughs> Come on, this movie's great. Battle of Algiers, come on. Let's rally. Let's, let's start a rally. I mean, there's a lot of things that we, we could talk about in terms of connections um, because Detroit and, and Bigelow and Bowl are so clearly influenced by the Battle of Algiers. But um, as we've discovered through talking about both of these films, uh, opinions on one are a little more favorable generally than the other. And so I want to kind of zero in on why that is <laughs> and, and why a certain narrative strategy uh, can pay off hugely in one instance and not so much in another. For me, part of it is that Battle of Algiers does focus a great deal on suffering, but it's the suffering of communities. It's the suffering of a society. It's the suffering of a, a city, a country. It's about the inhumanity of people and what they do to each other. But even though it does focus in really closely on people during individual scenes, there's nothing that like lingers in the suffering in the way that Detroit does. It's more concerned with with the big picture and with a an episodic, ongoing, developing story that slowly gives you the language. Like it, it doesn't really contextualize with history explaining what's going on and why any more than Detroit does. But you kind of get a language for it over time and you kind of come to understand like the the big forces in relation to each other in a way that to me Detroit just came down to a small group of people harming people in a way that seemed much less emblematic and representational of, of something big and important. For, for, for me, what makes Battle of Algiers more successful is you don't really get to know the characters all that well. You get to know them well enough, but what it lacks in depth, you get in scope. I mean, I feel like we're getting a very big story told in a lot of detail, you know, in, in, in a really sprawling way with Algiers, and, and, and we don't get that with Detroit. That's the thing. I think the word that keeps coming to mind with regards to Detroit is, is myopia, <laughs> and, and that is a consequence of of focusing so much on this one event that you that you miss a lot of stuff around it and um but <laughs> by the same token if you think about it as a act of journalism or cinematic journalism or some fusion of the two it's a well reported story right i mean like like if you're if you're talking about like trying to account for the, the who what when, when where whatever of this specific event the film does it thoroughly and effectively and vividly but i think it's just maybe we needed more than that so the battle of algiers is available on criterion dvd and blu-ray it's also currently streaming on filmstruck and can be rented from a variety of other sources Detroit opened on 3,000-plus screens, but only to middling box office, so you might want to hurry out to see it. Or not. (laughs) Uh, We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. 
We call it your next picture show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, back in uh, January at Sundance, I saw a little movie called Brigsby Bear, and I loved this movie so much. It is... I think one of those perfect movies to see knowing as little about it as possible. I wrote a review that basically says you shouldn't watch the trailer. You shouldn't read this review. You should just go see the movie. <laughs> so I'm not going to give away too much of it. I will say that um, Mark Hamill is in it from the very beginning. It's not a spoiler as a an actual live action character. You know, he's mostly been doing he, apart from Star Wars. He's mostly done voiceover and animated work. Uh, you get to see him on screen and it's really fun. It's directed by Dave McCary and uh, starring Kyle Mooney. Mooney is currently a player on Saturday Night Live and McCary is uh, a writer on Saturday Night Live. They've worked together since they were kids. They've been friends forever with the second writer of the film, Kevin Costello. So this is kind of their first feature together and it's a little bit of a labor of love. It's a very small, low-key movie, but it's it's about filmmaking and it's about creativity and it's about positivity, um, but it's also a comedy. If you liked Be Kind Rewind, I think this is uh, that is like the perfect touchstone for what this movie is without giving away too much of it. It's whimsical, which is not everybody's favorite thing. Uh, <laughs> it's quirky, which is not everybody's favorite thing. But more than anything, to me, it's it's surprising. It's just it's a really deft and delicate balance of a situation that could be played very much for cheap laughs and instead is played in this this wonderful warm way that reminded me a little bit of Lars and the Real Girl and kind of the dynamic there of a man that does something very strange and the community just sort of quietly rallies around him and decides that it's going to support him. So yeah, like Be Kind Rewind and uh, Lars and the Real Girl, I think, are the best kind of touchstones. If you need more convincing, you can watch the trailer. I'm just, I'm telling you, it'll give away things that you maybe don't want given away about this film. Um, it's in theaters right now. I hope it's still in theaters when uh, this podcast actually drops. Brigsby Bear. Yeah, uh-huh. you had me at Kyle Mooney, who I like a lot. And, hmm. and I haven't seen him, probably never will see Zoolander 2, but someone directed me mm. to his scene in Zoolander 2, which is um, pretty amazing. Uh, I which, have yeah. seen Zoolander 2, and I don't remember him. Mean, what Do you remember anything about it? He's um, sort of the uber hipster who uh, doesn't, oh doesn't gosh, understand. That's him. Yeah, he has no line between. He doesn't understand <laughs> ironic and, and sincere expressions. And, oh, yeah, I like, had yeah. no idea that uh, was him. That's fantastic. I'm going to watch that scene again after this and never watch Zoolander 2. But, yeah, that's <laughs> good, that's yeah. a good idea. Uh, so, Keith, you're talking. All right. Tell us what you're doing. All right. All right. I want some democracy here. Do you want the, the relevant one or do you want the fun one? After this podcast, the yeah, fun one, fun. please. Right, I'll, I'll briefly see. Uh, Scott and I came to blows on this on Twitter, but I would recommend, uh, with some reservations, because it's it's kind of formless in many ways. But the documentary Whose Streets is is a uh, uh, pretty uh, ground. That, that's the fun that's one. That's the fun one. No, no, no. Oh. I was saying, <laughs> this, just briefly because okay. it's too relevant to what we just talked about to not okay. mention. Sure. But it's, okay. it's ground level look at at Ferguson up the Ferguson unrest and and its aftermaths and and the Black Lives Matter movement and watching this film and Battle of Algiers in Detroit back to back you know you see all kinds of interesting echoes and, and, and the escalation between the protests and the police is too uh, similar to ignore uh, so yeah I'll recommend that but also uh, I saw a movie called Hopscotch uh, which is coming out or is out already on, on uh, Criterion Blu-ray and, and DVD and it is a, uh, a delight it is a uh, a lighthearted uh, spy thriller uh, directed by Ronald Neem a British director whose filmography is kind of all over the place um, he directed Alec Guinness in the horse's mouth and he directed such films as 
The Poseidon Adventure, and <laughs> Meteor. Uh, this is a really skillfully made film um, starring uh, Walter Matthau as a, as a CIA agent who's, who's trying to get out of the game and can't quite do it and kind of walks away from the job and tr- threatens to publish a tell-all memoir and is, is followed around the globe by his former uh, co-workers who, who include uh, Ned Beatty and a very young Sam Waterston. Linda Jackson is his love interest in it. Um, but, I mean, everyone's great, but Walter Matthau is so great. It's kind of the ultimate Walter Matthau uh, kind of shrugging his way through life role. It is uh, uh, an amazing performance in a delightful spry film filled with, uh, filled with great uh, Mozart musicals cues. So I would highly recommend the film Hopscotch and it will just um, it's definitely a palate cleanser after some of the films we've been talking about this week man you you had me at Mathau like I, I just I cannot fun. get enough of uh, the experience of Mathau slouching his way through through life and through roles uh, but Scott what do you have uh, well, since we're talking Pontecorvo this week, uh, I wanted to recommend Burn, his 1969 follow-up to the Battle of Algiers, and another fascinating political drama about colonialism. Uh, I actually saw this film before the Battle of Algiers because it was featured in one of Danny Peary's cult movies books, uh, which were wholly writ during my peak college cinephile years. Uh, Burn takes place on a fictional island in 1844 that's been colonized by the Portuguese who have enslaved the African natives. For their, you know, there's a sugar is the main export of this place. Um, and Marlon Brando plays an agent provocateur who's sent to the island by the British to organize a slave revolt that will upend the Portuguese regime and pave the way for for the British and for the Antilles Royal Sugar Company. Uh, so Burn is really a, a tale of two halves. In the first, Brando befriends and empowers and discovers this rebel leader named uh, Jose Dolores. And in the second, he assists British forces in quashing the rebellion. Uh, it's a fascinating and occasionally awkward film with, with multiple cuts, too, but very much of a piece with the revolutionary politics of the Battle of Algiers. And fun fact that I learned today for, via Wikipedia, Jose Dolores, uh, the, the rebel leader in Bern, inspired the logo of the socialist magazine Jacobin. Goodness. Jacobin? Which brings new meaning to the phrase... Bernie would have won. Huh? Oh, come God. on, guys! Oh, yes, Piss. right. <laughs> I did it. I did it. I just dropped a big dad joke on your head. I don't, I don't get it. Uh, oh, <laughs> both booing and hissing. Yeah. So I've 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 spoiled my own recommendation for the film Burn by <laughs> Julie Pondicorvo, which is quite good. Uh, Genevieve, what about you? Uh, well, I am going to recommend something that Scott started to recommend on the last show, but then was just overcome by the need to recommend Lawnmower Man instead. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm, I'm definitely missing out on these Priorities. episodes. Priorities, Genevieve. It, it, it actually happened. So I am going to fully recommend what uh, Scott half-heartedly did and uh, recommend Amanda Lippitz's Step, uh, which is a documentary mm. currently in theaters. I think it may still be in theaters by the time you're hearing this. If not, I imagine it'll make its way to streaming pretty quickly. It's a really crowd-pleasing documentary kind of loosely about uh, stepping the highly rhythmic kind of footwork focused dance style that is a big part of black fraternities and sororities. But this film focuses on a high school step team that's really just kind of the framing device for a story that goes beyond dance. Um, It's set at a leadership academy in inner city Baltimore. Uh, For black girls, it's about to see its first senior class graduate with the goal of a 100% college acceptance rate among those seniors. So Step kind of focuses on the 
challenges and expectations facing three of its step teams founding members who are about to graduate who are at different points on the achievement spectrum let's say mm-hmm. so there's lots of kind of entertaining practice sessions at step and a couple of you know really fun competitive uh, performances but really it's more kind of painting a sort of fly on the wall picture about the effort that goes into achieving excellence in the face of apathy and poverty and violence the um, kind of an interesting thing about this movie is it was filmed during and after the Freddie Gray incident uh, where uh, Freddie Gray was killed in police custody. That definitely comes out in the film. Um, But really, it's more about these girls, these three girls in particular. And I guess calling it a feel-good documentary kind of tells you in what direction it goes. But it's like, (laughs) it's a great journey to go on. I actually had the amazing experience of of watching it uh, with a group of mothers and daughters behind me, which is like, I think like the ideal way you could see this because it was just like the moms like nudging their daughters and the daughters like nudging their moms like see see because the mothers are also a a very big part of these girls stories as well it's a really great little story and i highly recommend seeing it if you can uh step yeah i I, I back that up too i saw it in true false where you know in in the biggest theater it was sold out i mean crowd pleaser definitely (laughs) is how you would describe um you know the reaction to this movie which which was picked up by fox searchlight and fox searchlight is not in the documentary realm almost ever. So you get an idea of just how appealing this movie is. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out September 5th and 7th. Tasha, what do we have lined up? Okay, well, these last few episodes have been really really heavy so we're especially grateful that steven soderbergh has returned to movies to give us a nice change of pace four years after declaring his retirement from the film world yet again after side effects soderbergh is back with logan lucky a new heist comedy about a famously unlucky west virginia family that tries to turn its fortunes around by stealing 14 million dollars from the charlotte motor speedway naturally such an impossible job called mine soderbergh's 2001 hit Ocean's Eleven, which has George Clooney, Brad Pitt, and Matt Damon hatching an impossible scheme to rob the vault under the Bellagio, the Mirage, and the MGM casinos in Vegas. We'll look at Soderbergh's deft approach to the genre and how these films fit into his eclectic career. Ocean's Eleven is currently streaming on Amazon Prime, and if you don't have Amazon Prime, you probably own a copy of the movie, right? If not, maybe you can break into the vault and steal one. <laughs> In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of the Battle of Algiers, Detroit, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve Kosky. You can find me at the culture section at Vox.com and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson and at uh, The Verge, where I write about film and run the film and TV section. And just lately, uh, you can find me experiencing the apotheosis of my career by appearing on Pop Culture Happy Hour, one of our <laughs> favorite, favorite uh, podcasts of all time. Keith? Oh, I'm sitting next to celebrity. I didn't know. <laughs> um, you can find me. Hey, I'm no Glenn Weldon. <laughs> you can find me at uprocks.com where I head up the film and TV sections and occasionally get to do some writing as well. And you can find me on Twitter at kphips3000. And Scott? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And you can find uh, my writing at New York Times, Washington Post, uh, NPR, uh, Variety, uh, Vulture, Uprocks, and other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. 
You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. It ain't Looking for justice, and it's just us. It ain't fair. Uh, there's a riot going on out there, and it ain't fair.